Please be seated. Good evening to you. The book of Psalms and our journey through the scriptures on Sunday night. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just get their attention, they'll be happy to get one into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, we want everybody to own a Bible. And so make that Bible a gift from the Lord tonight. We remain, in beginning in the book of Job, we began a, uh, a new section of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is broken up in different sections, and these are no, a section known as the books of poetry. And so there's the book of Job, and then there is Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And the book of Psalms is, a, is the hymnal of the Bible. It was the Hebrew hymnal or songbook. Now, uh, today, in a room like we have now, the, the seating that we have, and we don't really have like the pews that uh, have been traditionally common. These are more comfortable. You have to uh, admit that, the theater seating. But uh, you would always, most often, walking into that kind of situation, even today, in churches that have pews, they have the little rack, and then they have the hymnals there, and that's the songbook of the church. And, and so this book of Psalms was the hymnal. These were the songs that the children of Israel, God's people, would sing to the Lord when they were involved in the worship of him at the tabernacle, later at the temple, also in any kind of, of setting, any kind of celebration of feasts and all. These, this was their songbook. So we're going to read them, but originally they were written as songs to be put to music. So if Tom can just put the, maybe next week the next few to song uh, for me to music, I'll be happy to sing maybe the next five psalm, uh, psalms for you. It will be unforgettable. It will etch, etch them. I won't say it will make them a favorite of yours, but uh, you won't soon forget it. The word psalm, it comes from a Greek word that means a poem uh, to be sung to a stringed instrument. And so David and others would write these uh, lyrics and uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, they would then be dispatched to someone, Asaph or one of his sons, be put to music and then be used for worship. Now, the Psalms have always been uh, a favorite section of the Bible for God's people all through the ages. And one of the reasons is that the, is they're very experiential. And so you have a theology that is, and, and they're very theological. Uh, they, are, they are poems, they are songs, but they're very theo uh, theological. And there's a lot of theology in them. There's a lot of revelation about God in these psalms. But as we read them, so often we can understand the context in which they're written. Uh, so often with David's psalms, we are able to do that. And then we realize, ah, this was the song. This was what was going on inside of David spiritually when he was in this particular situation. I am in this particular situation. And so I don't maybe have the anointing of King David. I don't have a way with words like King David or Asaph or one of the other psalmists have. So we're able to then adopt one of, one of these psalms to ourselves and make it our expression to the Lord. It, it, most people will sooner or later um, have one, two, three, four, five, several psalms will become their favorite psalms. And most often a psalm becomes a favorite of ours because of what it reveals to us about God, its theology, but also because God used what was written in that psalm to get us through a particular season in life, maybe difficulty or something was happening in our life and we wanted to express a praise and a worship toward God and thanksgiving that we were incapable of our, on our own. And so almost everybody, when they've walked with the Lord for some length of time, if you were to ask them, what's your favorite song? Usually they'll have one, two, or three that becomes that because of their own experience with it. So they're, they're very experiential, and uh, we recognize, you know, what's being said in there. This is what I feel toward God. I'm in a similar situation, and, and uh, so they really deal with the human heart and, and all of the things that uh, we uh, feel 
and think as Christians, as God's people, on this pilgrimage as we're walking through uh, this fallen world. And so what they do is they communicate that for the child of God, in every circumstance, there's a song. In every circumstance that we find ourselves in in, li- in life, there is always a reason to praise God. There's always a reason to worship Him and ascribe worth to Him. And these psalms are written out of the broadest diversity of difficulty and trials and highs and lows and emotions. And we will recognize uh, ourself and our own circumstances and emotions in them as we make our way through them. Seventy-three of the 150 psalms, almost half of them, are ascribed to King David. And I really like this. I like the historical books that speak of David. He went through this and he did this and he uh, killed this giant and then, you know, the lion and the bear and then that, you know, crazy first king Saul. And uh, so you've got all the historical who, what, where, when, and why, and how that's listed in those historical books. But sometimes you can look at it and think, what in the world was David feeling at that time? What was happening spiritually between him and God at that time? And, and so often we're able to learn that as we read the Psalms, some of them knowing exactly what chapter in his life they came from. So 73, almost half of them are ascribed to David, 12 of them to Asaph, 12 to the sons of Korah, one to a man by the name of uh, Heman, and then one to uh, Ethan, and also one to Moses, and then 50 of them are anonymous. And so let's get into the Psalms uh, now. In Psalm 1, we have God's recipe for a blessed life. Now, I'm going to try and use this first night to establish a little bit of pace. Uh, We've got to get through 150 in something less than 12 years. And uh, so I'm going to be working on that. I shouldn't have mentioned it. You would have noticed it. That's why I mentioned it. But um, now you really will notice it. But here in Psalm 1, we have the recipe from God for a blessed life. He said, blessed is the man. And the word blessed there means, oh, how happy. Now, do we live in a country that is absolutely cuckoo crazy about finding uh, happiness in life and looking for what is the recipe for a blessed life. All you have to do is just, when you're killing time in an airport, if you're ever in an airport and you just walk into one of the bookstores and all, look at how many books are given over to attempts or uh, speaking about how to find a blessed life, how to find a happy life, how to find a fulfilling life. And, and no sooner will those books become bestsellers, fade away, be replaced by a whole new batch in order to be forgotten again and replaced by a whole new batch and on and on and on. That cycle is going to go until the Lord returns. And here you have God coming along and saying, let me give you the recipe for a blessed life. Who could be a greater authority on how to attain to and discover a blessed life than our Creator. And here it is. It's in the Bible here for free for us. Now, I I hope none of you were charged when you came into the Bible study tonight. You were? What door door was somebody $7 a pop making a little money on the side? But it's all free right here in Psalm 1. So he reveals to us is how to experience the secret to a blessed life or a happy life. And he lists in verse 1 and 2, the uh, Holy Spirit does five characteristics of the blessed man or the blessed person. And he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, counsel is always given for the purpose of influence, isn't it? 
It's given for the purpose of fashioning uh, a life. And so a blessed man is a man who does not allow the ungodly to fashion or to influence their lives. So he doesn't, this, the, you want a blessed life, don't allow the ungodly to fashion your thinking or your morals or your definitions of right and wrong, your actions, your anything. And that's the start of it. Now, so often in that day, when it would talk about the counsel of the ungodly, because there was very little that was written in those days and certainly nothing recorded in those days, almost all counsel took place face to face. So we have to sometimes update this a little bit for our culture and for our age. We do a lot less, like no time, at least in my lifetime, we do a lot less face-to-face influence kind of things. Most of the influence that is now happening is happening through electronics, uh, through media, television, iPod, radio, music, movies, all of these different kinds of ways. And so we have to carry it over into those areas and to realize that in order for my life to be blessed and to enjoy a blessed life, I must not come under the influence of the ungodly and allow them to uh, fashion my thinking and, again, my morals, how I see life, definition of right and wrong, and so so forth. So he doesn't allow the ungodly to fashion one iota of his heart, emotions, his mind, his thinking, uh, his soul, his spirit, or his flesh, or his body. And so when it speaks here of the ungodly, I think it's important to realize that it doesn't just refer to the wicked, but it also refers to those who in their counsel leave God out of their thinking, leave God out of their counsel. And as we'll see, the blessed man has much access to a much greater wisdom and a much greater counsel than any counsel that leaves God out. And so the psalmist is telling us that the ungodly have nothing to offer man in the search of happiness. And I'll tell you, you look anywhere in life and see if it isn't true. And, and that's why the search goes on for, for this in people's life is because uh, the ungodly don't have anything to offer. Second, he tells us that the, the blessed man does not stand in the path of sinners. In other words, he doesn't linger with them. He doesn't associate uh, closely with sinful man because the problem with lingering is, is if I linger with uh, wicked people, then it isn't long before I can find myself joining them in their, their sinful way. And so we need to be very, very discerning. If um, nobody takes anything else home other than this, we need to be very, very discerning if we want to experience a happy life and a blessed life to not only be very, very wise and, and discriminating related to who we make our counselors, but also who we make our friends who we make our peers, who we allow into close relationship with us. I forget who it is was. It came into my mind, and I didn't have time to to think it up. But, um, you know, there is the saying, and it's a very, very true saying. I forgot who said it, uh, concerning any young person. Uh, uh, He made the statement concerning a young person, but it's true of any of us. And that is, you tell me who your friends are, and I can describe your life five years from now. And that's the absolute truth. The influence of friendship. And this is a a thing that people blow through all of the time. I think I'm strong enough. I'm this, I'm this, and this in order, and I can allow myself to be surrounded by these kind of influencers, give close relationships to these kind of people, and it's not going to influence me. Uh, and uh, it does. doesn't mean that we can't be friendly with people who don't know the Lord. Jesus certainly was. But we are to influence people toward holiness. We're not to be drawn into their uh, sin. And so who we make our friends, our close associates, that's going to have a, a great deal to say about where we end up in not only in this life but also the life to come. So the sinner has 
nothing to offer the man in search of happiness or blessing, the psalmist tells us. And then 30 tells us that this man does not sit in the seat of the scornful. And you see the progression there, walks, stands, and now sitting. And so the blessed man is a person who's careful about what environments he puts himself in or what environments he makes himself at home in. And so to sit is to settle down. The idea of the word is to settle down and make myself at home in. And a a person that wants to have a blessed life is not going to settle in, make himself at home and comfortable with those who are scorners. And the idea is those who scorn God. Uh, They scorn his ways, they scorn his truth, uh, they, they scorn everything about him, his people, his holiness, and all of these things. And so we are not to find ourselves settling in, making ourselves comfortable in environments where God is openly uh, despised and where God is openly despised and scorned. The blessed man avoids those environments. And again, uh, we move it into television. How much television today, how much music today, all of these other areas that speak into our life where God is openly scorned and mocked and his standard is ridiculed and he is hated. And we think that because it's a song or it's a sitcom or, what's, or whatever, that it doesn't have an effect on us. And it does. And it, and it defiles our lives. And so we need to be discriminating uh, in that area. So the psalmist tells us that the scornful man has nothing to offer the man in search of happiness or blessing. He also then goes on and moves away from the neg- negative, or, and it's a very positive negative, Um, of what he avoids, but then what he includes into his life. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So the person that wants to be blessed, the person that wants this uh, life, uh, uh, oh, how happy kind of life, his attitude toward the Word of God, his or her attitude is they love the Word of God. You don't have to drag them into church. You don't have to force them to have a daily quiet time with the Lord. They love to do it. They love to obey the Word of God, love to be under the influence of the Word of God. And then further, he meditates upon God's Word day and night. The word meditate in the original language is interesting because it kind of carries the idea, a little different angle to it, of chewing the cud. So there are animals like cows who will... um, eat grass or whatever they eat, and then they bring it back up and they chew it again. So fine for a cow. I mean, it's a little disgusting to us because we have a different digestive system. And uh, so they bring it back up because they want to get everything out of it that they can possibly get, uh, you know, get out of it. And, and it's all a part of their digestive system in order to make this thing that they've eaten. They want to uh, have it fully ingest it, have it fully become a part of their life. And so the psalmist uses this imagery related to the Word of God. Well, how do we do that? It's when we read the Word uh, of God and, and we meditate on it. The Hebrew word for meditate means to utter sounds or to speak. And it means we read the Word of God and then it doesn't stop there. Boom! The book gets closed and everything and say, all right, where's the remote? So we read the Word of God and then we meditate on it. We kind of talk it over with God. And this is one of the great things of getting a little bit older, period. And then getting a little bit older with the Lord is you don't care um, if you're in public and you're caught talking uh, to God and nobody else is in the aisle. It rallies. So what? I'm never going to see these people again. Oh, they go to the church. Ooh. Well, they'll understand then. But, but there's that whole thing where we read something and then it's like, Lord, I don't see how that fits into my life or what about this thing over here? And we start to work that over. And one of the amazing things about the Christian life is God talks. And what he'll do is he'll give us revelation. I mean, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Just to raise your hand. Because I know I'm not all alone. So here you are, you're meditating on something and this and that and all. And then the Lord, all of a sudden, boom, he gives you this insight to it. And you go, all right, I get it. 
I see that now, how that works. And it would have, that revelation would have never come apart from meditating upon uh, the Word of God. So there's just this ongoing conversation between uh, this blessed man and God concerning the things of the Lord. Uh, Paul wrote to the Colossians and, and gave a, a great New Testament kind of way of encapsulating it. He said, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that's what it is. I want this word to have as deep a place in my life as it possibly can. And when it talks about day and night, that's figurative language in the, for Jewish language for always. So at the start of the day, all the way to the end of the day, the final moments of consciousness before we fall asleep, meditating upon the things of the Lord. And so the blessed man or woman is the one who allows the Word of God to be the dominant uh, influence in his life. And that's going to result in uh, a certain quality of life. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now we're talking about Israel here. And you have rivers, plural. So you have a tree in the Middle East, in Israel, that's planted uh, next to this abundant source of water. That's just expressing a very blessed tree. That's a very, very uh, rich tree. And so he's speaking about the fact that the Word of God is this unfailing source of, of spiritual life. He speaks of it as being planted by the rivers of water. In other words, it's, it, its roots go deep. It's solid. What uh, uh, the, the Christian life that's planted in the Word of God or that has this deep relationship with the Word of God, that, that's a Christian whose, lives, life, whose life goes very, very deep and isn't likely to be uh, thrown, you know, over, overcome by some kind of a storm. He says that he'll also, uh, that, uh, it, that it'll be like a tree that brings forth its fruit in its season. And so this is the kind, a tree doesn't bring forth fruit for itself. You go out and you see, an, ever seen an apple tree eat an apple? Can't do it. Wouldn't that be terrible if it was like had apples and was just dying for an apple? But that's not the way God made them. So they bring forth fruit in order to bless other people. So this kind of a person isn't going to go into this I, me, my selfish life that we're going to, real, we're going to learn one of the great secrets of happiness that is that, for instance, our culture in the United States of America is running us away from because for us it's all more and more and more I, me, and my no matter how many times you run off the cliff. But satisfaction and fulfillment isn't found in that kind of life. It's found in God working in my life in such a way that I now have an abundance out of my life in order to bless other people and to refresh them. And that's what a fruit tree does. People come up and they can partake of it. They're refreshed by our, our spiritual relationship with the Lord. So it's when we write a letter to someone or we're kind of a listening ear to someone or we have a kind word to speak to someone. We have this overflow in our life, this torrent of living water in our life because of what God is, is doing uh, in our lives. So it produces a fruitful life whose leaf shall also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. It just produces a strong, healthy, spiritual prosperous life. And then in contrast to that, he says, the ungodly are not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away, and therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So the characteristics of the ungodly are the exact opposite of the blessed man, of the righteous man. So the ungodly are those who make the ungodly their counselors. They do stand in the path of sinners. They do sit in the seat of the scornful. They don't delight in the law of the Lord. They don't meditate on the word of God. It's not an influence in their life at all. And he says, as a result, they're like the chaff which the wind blows away. And a chaff is just that hard covering that is over a kernel of wheat. And in order to get to that uh, meat of the grain, uh, you would uh, uh, take and break that outer 
uh, coat over the grain and then they would uh, all of the the grain would be there and then all of the chaff in a pile they'd find a windy kind of spot or hill to stand on the wind would be blowing and they'd throw it up in the air with these baskets and the wind would blow the chaff away and the grain would stay because it was it had some weight and some substance uh, to it and so this uh, in the same way what the psalmist is communicating is that the godly, the ungodly, they don't have any depth. They don't have any roots into something that's solid, so they're completely vulnerable to every wind that goes through life. You think about how many fads. How many? Don't shout out. How many fads have you been through in your life? So many fads. How many hairstyle fads? How many clothing fads? Boy, if we'd have just kept all those clothes, they're all back in fashion again. But, he, but fads in thinking, fads in eating, fads in this and that and all. And because the, the ungodly have no anchor speaking spiritually, morally, mentally, this kind of way, they have no anchor to their heart, mind, soul, and strength, then they just get thrown all over the place. Every time somebody comes through with a, a new idea, they glom onto it and they just become a victim of the wisdom of man until finally they come to know the Lord and, and get under the wisdom of, of their maker. And so they're just doomed to become a casualty in life. And so verse 5 or verse 4 speaks of their present condition, and then in verse 5 it speaks of their future. He says, they, uh, Therefore the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There's a judgment on the other side of this life, and God says it's not going to go well for the ungodly. And so when he says they do not, will not stand in the congregation of the righteous, that means they're not going to join the righteous in heaven. Heaven is not in their future. Instead, as he says in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. In other words, they are, instead they're going to perish. And so the Lord speaking there in verse 6, uh, he knows the way that, uh, the, where the uh, way of the righteous leads leads to heaven. He knows the way of the end of the un- ungodly, and he knows it leads to judgment. And so the um, a blessed man is one who is not only blessed in this life, but also blessed in, in the life to come. And the ungodly, lacking a foundation in God's word, they're driven around like chaff in the wind in this life, only to face God's judgment in the next. And so if that's you today, you say, that's my life. I, I listen to everything and read everything and do, and I've been thrown all over the whole globe and every wind of doctrine and everything, and I need an anchor. And, it, and you come to a, po- a point in your life, all of us do, where you just say, listen, I, I want to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Uh, I feel that about a plumber. I feel that about a car mechanic. I feel that about a clerk in a store when I'm buying something for 39 cents. How much more as it relates to life and eternity? Hey, listen, I've, I've already talked to enough, enough people who don't know what they're talking about. I want to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. And God is that someone. And so here is his recipe uh, for a blessed life. And every single life will prove this psalm to be true just on one side or the other. And so God says, try it. You might like it. You will like it, as a matter of fact, the uh, the blessed life. Then in Psalm 2, and I love Psalm 2. Well, I love all of them. But uh, Psalm 2 is one of my favorites because in it we have the description of the uh, end of man's rebellion against God that is ultimately going to happen in human history. So this particular psalm always reminds me that God wins and that man's rebellion against God is not going to go on indefinitely. The world as we know it is not going to go on forever and ever and ever, that ultimately it is going to reach a climax, 
God is going to win and already has, but he will win outwardly in human history. And, and one day the pride of man and the rebellion of man is going to be put to an end. And it has kind of an application of it can describe, well, let's just, let me just read the first three verses. Why do the nations rage? Talking about the whole world. And the people plot a vain thing. And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that is, God the Father, and against his anointed, that is, the Messiah, Jesus, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So what you have here is is a description, uh, it's a, a great and very apt description of the battle of Armageddon that is a future battle that is is going to occur at the end of the great tribulation period. And uh, we know from the rest of the revelation of Scripture that following the rapture of the church, the Antichrist is going to come on the scene. Uh, He he is... his revelation occurs with the breaking of the first seal in the book of Revelation. He, those seals constitute the wrath of God, and because we're not appointed to wrath, we need to be gone before the revelation of the Antichrist. And it's interesting, the Antichrist will set up a, uh, a, a final world-ruling empire and what we, it, what we know today as Europe, a resurrected um, Roman empire in Europe. And so he's going to come on the place. He's going to make Europe into an economic powerhouse. You look at Europe today, you say, how in the world would, why in the world would those nations give their, all their power and all their sovereignty over to one man? I mean, how could things get so chaotic economically that one man would show up on the scene and have all of the answers and everybody would have uh, plenty to eat and uh, a Mercedes and a Fiat and, well, uh, there's a bit of a gap there, uh, an opal, uh, whatever it might be, in their garage and all. And we realize people will really literally follow the devil himself for just some pleasure, economic prosperity, and he's going to take advantage of that. And, and ultimately, the, rev- the tribulation period is going to get very, very messy. But at the end of it, three great armies are going to come together, initially intending to fight one another. They hate one another. And so this battle for the power of, of the, uh, the control of the world, the Antichrist will control one of those armies. They will come together in order to destroy one another. And then at the second coming of Jesus, at his second coming, their hatred of him is so great that they will unite together in order to now take on God in a battle. And uh, the Bible says that when that battle of Armageddon occurs, it, it isn't something like Jesus comes in swashbuckling or something and hours later everything is cleaned up. The Bible says he just speaks something out of his mouth. Um, we don't know what it is. This is ridiculous. Uh, or whatever it might be, um, he may just say his name and, and then the armies are going to be destroyed. And the whole valley of Megiddo, 164 miles long, uh, the corpses will be so high, the blood that will be shed, it will be as high as a horse's bridle. That's the size of the armies that are there. And they, so they will then turn at that time, we're going to take on God, we hate God, in the hopes that they're going to be, uh, be able to uh, defeat God. And so this is the, um, the attempt that they're going to make. It also has a great application to just man's rebellion against God, just period, all day, every day here uh, in the world, and, and uh, that it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and, and, and pe- you know, people uh, getting filled with the confidence that they're going to be able to overthrow God, the idea of God, the concept of God, and and uh, be done with him, fight against him, and win. You notice in verse 1 that they rage against God. So they don't rage against the concept of God. Uh, They don't rage against a God that they can make up in their own minds, a God of their own fashioning or something uh, like that. What they rage against and who they rage against is the God of the Bible. Uh, they, They rage against a God who is already in existence, who is already well-defined, a God who already has his own definitions of right 
and of wrong and a God who gives commandments to men with the idea that we will obey those commandments. That's the God that the world rages against, not any other God, the God of the Bible. Now, the, um, it, 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 the psalmist tells us that they plot a vain thing. And what is the vain or the empty thing that they plot, that the ungodly imagine? The vain thing that they plot is that they can rebel against God and win. You notice in verse 2, against the Lord's Lord and his anointed. So they have this idea that we're going to engage in a battle against God and we're going to take everything he's created and everything that belongs to him and we're going to run him out of dodge. We're going to run him uh, uh, off uh, uh, like that is is going to happen. So that's the, it's a plot or it's an imagination and it's called vain simply because it's not going to happen. And uh, you think to yourself, how in the world can man come to the conclusion that he can ever win in a battle with God? Now that's, that's a lot of pride. I've been in a few fist fights and stuff when growing up and that kind of thing. And some of them I went into feeling pretty confident. I didn't go into any of them thinking. Let's just put it that way. So there wasn't a lot of thought going into that. I was not a good fist fighter. And so, um, and then some of them, it would just be like, why in the world would you do that? I mean, that's just crazy to engage in this. So how, how in the, what could possess a person to think about taking on God and ever thinking that they have a, a, a chance of winning in a battle with God? And we're told in verse 2 that they take counsel together. They, the people of the world convince themselves, they convince one another then that they will be able to do that. And so it's just this uh, uh, intellectual inbreeding. And so they just get around people who think the same way that they do, that are equally impressed with their own abilities and all this kind of thing. And pretty soon you have enough kind of pep rallies related to that and you have the same goal and you start to feed off of one another and you begin to think that the impossible is is possible. And so they're convinced at this time just by virtue of sheer numbers. Look at how many of us there are that will be able to throw off uh, the shackles of of God. And uh, you notice that they take counsel together, they, but they, they don't take counsel of God. That's a sure way to lose any perspective at all. You notice that in verse 3, in their pride and rebellion, how they view the commandments or the ways of the Lord. They view them as bonds that have to be broken. And I understand all that. I mean, I, I haven't been a Christian all my life. And it's easy to look at the Word of God and, and think, oh, look at all of these rules, all of these thou shalts and all of these thou shalt nots. And it looks like it looks like the Christian life is such a restrictive life. I'm going to miss out on everything in life. There's so many things that God forbids. And then he tells me to do so many other things that, uh, I, that my flesh would think that there's a better places to invest uh, that, kind of, uh, that kind of time. And so his, God's word is viewed as something that is restrictive. It's, it's a bondage. It holds us back. When, in fact, the Bible teaches that every single commandment of God, every time we obey a commandment of God, we become free and freer still. Behind every single commandment, it, every single commandment of God as we obey it, it frees us to live the life that we have been created to live. It doesn't take us into bondage. It takes us into true freedom. And I, I have never been freer in my whole life than as a Christian because I'm living life as God has intended to be, and it's a free life in the ways that freedom really matters. And so, but this is their, this is their view. This is holding us back. God's commandments, we need uh, to break uh, all of that off from us. And he who sits in the heaven, God tells us, uh, speaking of the Lord, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall hold them in derision. Sometimes people ask, um, did Jesus ever laugh? You read all kinds of different books and stuff. There's no record that he laughed. There's no record that he didn't laugh at all. Sometimes I read books and you, 
would have thought we, we ought to call them chuckles. I mean, they make God, they make Jesus, they're trying to make him so, you know, user-friendly and the whole thing that he's just like us. And I mean, he was just a riot to be around. I mean, you never knew what he was going to say next. He's just like us. Don't you love Jesus? Group hug. And so there's this thing, you know, that uh, trying to make him more approachable and all of that. I prefer to approach him in the way that that is deserving of him. And with, that's with great reverence and great awe. It doesn't hurt me to do that. I love that. I love to esteem him in that way. But we don't really know. But, we, but the answer to whether God ever laughs is right here in this psalm. And he does laugh, not because what he's seeing is funny at all, um, he laughs here because he finds this pride and this rebellion of man to be laughable. I mean, here is man. He depends upon God for his next breath, and he's going to fight God. He's going to fight the very source of his life. The Bible says that by Jesus, everything consists, including our whole life. He holds all of the atoms, the whole subatomic structure. He holds all of it together in his power. If man were able to defeat God and defeat Jesus and and overthrow God and get rid of Jesus, it would be the destruction of all of creation, including ourselves. This is the nuttiness of the wisdom of man. We can't cure the common cold. We have no answer for death. We are so weak and we are so frail, and yet somehow... In this insanity, they're going to take on God and, and they're going to uh, defeat God and beat him. And when God looks at this, here is the creation taking on the creator. He just laughs. I mean, we have made a mess of this world, north, south, east, and west. I don't care how positive you are with a positive mental attitude. It's tough to hold on to that. In the light of what mankind has made of the world, we say, oh, the world's getting worse and worse. Why? Those people are getting worse and worse. And, and so here is, uh, for all of this obvious proof that we are unqualified to be God or to overthrow God, um, there's this attempt to get ready to fight God and to win. And, and all of this is laughable to God. He just laughs at the arrogance and he laughs at the pride. Clearly, he does not consider himself to be in any danger. Oh, no. How many of them are in the valley of Megiddo? (laughs) He's not frightened at all. You ever feel like you have to defend God? He does not need defending at all. He is not a nervous wreck in heaven over what's going on or what men think of him or what's, what, what's going to happen in the future. He knows how all of this settles out. But you notice also that in verse 5, his um, laughter does give way to wrath. And so he says, then he shall speak to them in his wrath. Don't want to be there and displeasure them in his and distress them in his deep displeasure. And so um, the idea is forget whatever man thinks of God or anybody else thinks of God. We need to look out for ourselves, make sure we are on the right side of uh, God and that our life is bringing him pleasure. And he tells us how to do that in just a moment. And then God says, yet I have set my king. You're not going to overthrow my Messiah. He's talking about the king that he's going to set up in the world. It's not the, ultimately, the, this world is not going to be ruled by man in the absence of God. It's going to be ruled by God. And Jesus at his second coming is going to come. He's going to step down on that Mount of Olives. There's going to be a great earthquake. It's going to split in two directions. He is going to then enter into the the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to establish a thousand-year reign on the earth. And then after that, then all of creation will melt and dissolve with a fervent heat, and it will all give way to a new heavens and a new earth. The only thing that's eternal in the, word, in the world today are people, our souls. We are eternal beings. And then number two, the word of God. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word shall not pass away. 
Everything else is going to be gone one day. But during that thousand-year reign, Jesus is going to rule righteously in this world, and it's going to be a fabulous time of, of great prosperity. It would, when you aren't spending the kind of money that the nations of the world that are spending on defense and military and crime and, and, crime and courts and police and judges and, and alarm systems, and you take it wherever you want... There's an awful, this world is an amazing place. You remove the sinfulness of man and how that gobbles up the resources, put it under a righteous king, and this world is an amazing place, what God has created, even in its fallen form. Now, he will have to rule, as we're going to see in a moment, with a rod of iron because uh, because even then there are going to be those that are kind of in that thousand-year reign. We'll be in our glorified bodies at that time, which I'm thankful for because we can't, you know, stumble and fall anywhere along the way. Uh, and, and, uh, but he will rule with a rod of iron because there'll still be that, uh, those that survive the tribulation period, they will inhabit the world at that time. The Jews will as well and uh, that survive that great tribulation time, and they'll still have that old uh, nature. But at any rate, he is going to set up his king on his holy hill of Zion, speaking of Jerusalem. And God says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And so here is the Messiah, the the future king of the world is described by the psalmist uh, uh, probably about a thousand years before Jesus was born that he will be the son of God even as Jesus is. Jesus is the son of God and the Messiah. I love always to... Uh, speak about that in Israel so that our Jewish guides and others can can hear that, that the Messiah is the very Son of God, so don't be surprised by the claim. And then this Messiah, Jesus, you shall break them, that is all rebellion, with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And then now God's counsel in the light of the fact that man is not going to win, but God is going to win in human history. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. So respect God and respect the God of Bible, have, of the Bible. Have a reverence for him rather than joining these groups that are always speaking God down and full of themselves and full of nonsense as a result. And then rejoice with trembling. He said, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So here's the picture in Psalm 2. Here is God the Father, and then here is Jesus on the throne, king of the world. And here, are, here is rebellious people in a current rebellion against God. They're going to fight God, and they think they can win. They get brought into the throne room of God, and God in essence says to them, so to speak, one by one, here's my counsel to you. You will never win in your rebellion. My son is one day going to rule all of it. So my counsel to you is don't make him angry. Instead, kiss him. And when you would have a subject that got, came before the king and he knew he was guilty as sin and the king gave him an opportunity to make things right, he would go up to the king and he would kiss him his feet or his ring or something as an act of, I am now submitted to you. I was in rebellion to your rule. Now I am in submission to your, your kingship and your rule. And it was to communicate that. And so that's what God calls the world to do, even today. It's not too late to do it. One day it will be too late. But today is still a time to end a rebellion against God and then come to the Son and kiss Him, submit to Him and to His reign and, and, and to His Lordship. And how do we do that? The final sentence there, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him by putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's to kiss the Son. 
and is to please the Father. So Psalm uh, 2 here uh, speaks to us of, of the fact that God's, uh, that man's rebellion against God, it's going to come to an end. It's not going to go on forever. God wins, and so make sure you're on the winning side. How am I on the winning side? By kissing the Son, by putting my faith in Jesus. It is a, the psalm, again, is a, a great joy and a great uh, relief to me because it, among many, many other passages in the Bible, tells us history in advance. And, and it's good to know history in advance. I have a twin brother named Gabe, and um, Gabe had this annoying habit when we were growing up and we would watch a television show. And the television in our house was about like this. So you picture six people in a living room, little black and white, and uh, trying to look at this thing. So whatever the shows were, uh, Gabe would always, like within the first five minutes, he would know the whole plot line, how it was going to end. Now, that wasn't so bad if he'd keep it to himself, but he didn't. He told all of us how it was going to end, or he'd tell me just to bug me. Now, when I watch something, I, I, it never enters my mind. Some of you are probably like me. never enters my mind to try and figure it out. I don't want another puzzle in my life. I'm sitting down to watch this for recreation. And so they're just going to, this person has got a message that they want to give. It's a message that I want to receive. And they just take me right on along. And I'm just right in the moment of the thing. Not my brother Gabe. He could tell you the whole thing. Now, I know people personally that when they read a book like a murder mystery or something like this, they're still going to heaven. I know it's terrible. But they, they like these suspenseful books and all. They like the suspense, but they don't like the suspense. So they'll read the end of the book. So they can go through all of the, you know, the tension of the whole thing and they know how the book ends. And, and here, in, the, in this particular psalm, God tells us how human history ends so that we don't have to be a wreck while it's unfolding. We know the end of the story. And because we know the end of the story, all we need to know is to know that we're on the right side of God and then just follow the, serve the Lord and in, enjoy the ride, so to speak, that everything is going to be all right. God is going to take care of it. And that removes an awful lot of anxiety from our lives, that God, anxiety that God wants to have removed from our lives. And so God wins. Praise the Lord. And so kiss the Son and uh, make Him your Lord, and everything turns out uh, great. Well, we are flying, aren't we? And uh, so let's stop there tonight. This gives me a little feel for what I have to do. I'll be all better by next Sunday. And uh, we'll do three psalms next Sunday, Lord willing, and just shock you. But we will stop there tonight. And, uh, and let's have the worship team come forward this evening and lead us in a little bit of worship and allow us just to uh, do what we've read about here in Psalm 1, take some of these truths that we've looked at and just chew the cud, so to speak, and allow them to ha take a little deeper place in, in our lives this evening.